So it was 25 minutes last summer, 40 minutes today. So next year I think I get like three hours, I think. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, it's so good to be with you this morning, uh, just to bring God's word. Uh, would you turn in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 19? We live in a day and age where seemingly limitless information is on demand and at your fingertips at all times. And even, but even today, with all of that, we still go back to these archaic analog things with pages, books. Most of us owe a lot of what we know to books, textbooks, novels, biographies, dictionaries, manuals, cookbooks, etc. We go from the opening pages of ignorance to a working knowledge by taking in the information and meaning found in the pages of books. Books communicate something. Their authors have intended messages and meanings. David in Psalm 19 draws on this, and Charles Spurgeon, the great British pastor, reflecting on the psalm, had this to say. In his earliest days, the psalmist, while keeping his father's flock, had devoted himself to the study of God's two great books, nature and scripture. And he had so thoroughly entered into the spirit of these two only volumes in his library that he was able, with the devout criticism, to compare and contrast them, magnifying the excellency of the author as seen in both. I don't want to lean too heavily on the book analogy or force it into the psalm where it isn't, but it does help us frame up what David is trying to communicate. Before we read it, uh, let's take a look at a bit of the background of the psalm. Uh, unfortunately, there's not a whole lot to that background. Uh, like Psalm 23, there isn't a whole lot of information about it. We don't really know when in his life it was written, and it causes it to have a bit of a timeless feel. We know it well. It appears to be related to Psalm 8, which Josh preached on last week, uh, as it speaks of the heavens and of creation. It's also known as one of the Psalms of the Law alongside Psalm 1 and Psalm 119. Beyond it being difficult to discern when in David's life it was penned, it's likewise difficult to categorize it in the usual psalmic genres as it seems to fall into several. So at a glance, we'll be walking through this psalm in three points. God revealed in nature, God revealed in scripture, and the response to God's revelation. So with that in mind, let's read the psalm, and we'll pray for the Lord to be with us this morning. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world, in them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, 
enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Lord, we can't help but be moved by this psalm as we read it. We see your glory in the heavens. We see the glory in your word, and we're, we're affected by it. We pray this morning that we would be affected by your word. We pray that as we walk through this psalm, that your word would go forth, that I would be out of the way, that your truth would go forth. Encourage your people. Lift our eyes to you this morning. And may it all be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Like Psalm 8, we begin in the heavens. In Psalm 8, it begins with David describing God setting his glory above the heavens. But in Psalm 19, the perspective changes to that of the heavens themselves. And it's not subtle about it. The heavens declare, the skies proclaim Day pours out speech, and night reveals knowledge. While you could gloss over this as being repetitive, it's a poetic way of communicating something significant. It's emphatic. And David doesn't want us to miss it. If we take verse 1 and roughly translate it from Hebrew, we get a chiasm, which is a fancy sandwich, literary sandwich, where it, it moves toward the center of something that is the core, the meaning of the text. And remember, it, 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 it's, it's meant to sandwich that meaning to make a very distinct point with a clear emphasis. So we see the heavens declare God's glory and the skies proclaim his handiwork. David is telling us there is a direct link between God's glory and his handiwork. They are inextricably linked. God's glory is in no way limited to what he has made, but it is nothing less than that. The other big point is creation is emphatically, endlessly communicating the message of God's glory found within. Yet in verse 3, we get something interesting. We're told that in spite of all the language surrounding speech, we're told there isn't any. But everyone can hear it. Imagine it like this. You're in a foreign country, and someone is speaking to you. It's absolutely clear that they are addressing you. And they seem, to, they seem to be telling you something of utmost importance, but you don't speak the language. For all their effort and all you're trying, you don't understand. That's the image David is trying to make. It's non-speech speech, non-word words that everyone can perceive as communication, 
He continues on that this cry of the heavens, it goes through all the earth to the ends of the world. There isn't anywhere that this silent proclamation isn't. It's this very point that Paul is trying to make in Romans 1 where he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. The heaven's voice declares God's glory and it's undeniable. It's clearly perceived in the things that have been made God's handiwork. David then zooms in on the heavens on something that dwells in it, the sun. He uses language that humanizes the sun. God made, has made a dwelling for the sun. And David uses the image of a tent in the heavens. He then does something interesting and likens the sun to two very specific things. To a bridegroom. Because a bridegroom is excited to see his bride. He's been waiting a long time for this day. He's dressed up. He's fully awake. His faculties are alert. There is an eager joy to see her and to be united together. The other image is a world-class athlete. Because he's been training his whole life to run with excellence. It is a joy to use all that training, all that discipline, and to leave all of it on the track. We think of someone like a Usain Bolt who's smiling as he runs. There's a joy. Fastest man in the world. And he's smiling as he's booking it down the track. That's the sun. So David uses these images to show what God has made isn't phoned in. It's not lethargic. It wasn't made half-heartedly. It was masterfully designed. And creation runs with precision and does exactly what it's made to do with joy. And if creation... As God designed it with precision, it's so precise that the entire world sets their clocks to it. It is trustworthy and filled with his glory. And if we can trust creation, how much more can we trust the creator? Has something shaken your trust in him? Are you fighting to believe the certainty of his promises? Look up. Let the rising and setting sun remind you of his faithfulness. He then finishes this section on the sun by stating that from one end to the other, it runs its track, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Once again, we have an image of something exhaustive. Just as the voice of the heavens covers all the earth, nothing on earth is hidden from the heat of the sun. So at the end of this first section, we have this incredible, far-reaching message from a joyful creation about the Creator, but in speech that no one can hear. No one can understand it without more information. We need something to translate it for us so we can clearly understand what is being said. And as we look into the next section, the psalm, it becomes clear. That we are not left hanging without an answer. The thing we need to hear is Torah. 
the Word of God. That's what we need. So as we look at verses 7 through 11, we enter into the beautiful poetic movement about the law of the Lord, or Torah. Before we dig into, I want to touch a little bit on what the law is and why anyone would want to write so eloquently about it. When we bring up the law, in particular the word, it generally elicits these ideas of modern legal ordinances or obscure binding commands from Levitical law. It's not exactly the kind of thing you have a love affair over. Have you ever slowed yourself down when you're reading these passages and wondered why anyone would write a love letter to purity law? There are a few reasons why we think this way. We read with the knowledge of what we know from our perspective, and that is modernity, 2023. We also don't think of the law as this sum total of parts. That is everything in the the Torah. Instead, we take one word or one aspect of this idea of law and we take it very literally. David uses a lot of what appears to be synonyms in this section to paint a comprehensive picture of what the word of the Lord is or the law. But before we get there, I want to I use a bad acrostic or a bad acronym from growing up in the church to get at something important. If you grew up in the church, and maybe if you're new to the church, maybe you've heard this, uh, you may have heard this, this acrostic for the Bible that goes something like, basic instructions before leaving earth. <laughs> Laughter and eye rolls aside, there is actually some truth in this well-meaning yet awkward youth group one-liner. The idea of a manual for being an image bearer of God, for being a human. We know God is the creator. We know he is the designer. And a designer knows how his design works best, how his creation can flourish. So what if instead of only being a list of to-dos and don'ts, it was actually a comprehensive text that contained all he wanted us to know in order to know him, to know ourselves, to make sense of our existence, and how to be reconciled to our maker, how to interact with other image bearers, acquire true wisdom, etc. What if this text was truly the guide to human flourishing, to the good life? Not a promise of worldly, tangible prosperity, fame, or perfect health, but this Augustinian idea that happiness comes from the soul clinging to God. A happiness that cannot be suppressed by the brokenness of this world despite how things look. If there was such a thing that could teach us about God and how our souls can cling to him, that tells us one day that that God would make all things right and we would dwell with him forever, wouldn't that be incredible? Wouldn't that be a treasure? Could you even put a price on such a thing? That's why David is so excited. It's the very same law of the Lord he tells us that the blessed man in Psalm 1 delights in. The very same thing that he meditates upon day and night. We too should be thinking about the law of the Lord and the word of the Lord in this way. Verses 7 through 9, similar to the first two verses of the psalm, verses 1 and 2 have this repetition of sorts, a restating of similar things in different ways. 
In English, we see a pattern of nouns, adjectives, and verbs. For example, the first one is the law is perfect, it revives. And the rest of the, of the descriptions that David uses follow that format. These are all meant to work together to weave a tapestry of what the word of the Lord is. You are left with this image of a life-giving, wisdom-producing, purifying word of God. All but one of the lines is acting upon us. It's causal. The one that stands out is the fear of the Lord, or the reverence of the Lord, which is the direct effect of this word. In verse 10, David switches from describing what it is to its value. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Gold is certainly not what it was in the ancient world, but even now we associate it with value and wealth. Most of us, if not all, have tried or are trying to build wealth. We see money as security, allowing us opportunities and possessions we wouldn't otherwise have. It's a way to leave an inheritance of value for the loved ones we leave behind. A legacy. In and of itself, there's nothing wrong with this. There certainly can be. We can make an idol of it. We can focus too much on it. But at its base, there's there's nothing wrong with that. I think David is getting at this basic human desire to have something of value. Gold was desired by men and it still is. Yet David says, the word of the Lord is to be desired even more. He sees the eternal value of God's sustaining, life-giving word. He sees that no one can take that away from him. Where gold can be stolen, spent, left behind when we die, this treasure endures forever. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. For all the kids out there, how many of you kids like sweet things? Candy, donuts, there they are, yes, some adult kids, that's very good, I think we all do. (laughs) Candy, donuts, yes. Who doesn't like sweet things? We value sweet things. They are a treat, a treasure of sorts, especially my kids. It's like, they like to bury it in the ground. Uh, Honey honey was around in biblical times, but it was rare. It was rare much like gold is rare, and that rarity made its value skyrocket. To enjoy honey in those days was an absolute luxury. And again, David is saying, the word of the Lord, it's even better. It's sweeter than all the honey you can imagine. And for today, kids, it's sweeter than all the candy and popsicles and cookies and donuts that you can imagine. David is viewing gold and honey as positives in this psalm. And he's saying Torah is better. Fill your storehouses with the priceless word. Fill your belly with the sweet, sweet word. Partake and savor deeply in the word of the Lord. He then changes the tone a bit and he begins to become more personal. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Well, it's all been largely positive to this point. You can, you can almost see David just beaming as he pens this. David shifts to the word of warning, that the word is warning him. It can seem almost stern if you, and abrupt, but it's not disconnected from what he's been saying. 
When he was speaking of the attributes of the word, we see the language surrounding wisdom, enlightenment, and righteousness. What is more wise than knowing where we ought not to go and staying away from it? Any loving parent is going to set limits and warn their children out of love for them and out of care for their well-being. This is preemptive, it's protective, and it is loving. But he doesn't leave it there with the warning. He follows it up immediately by saying, In keeping the word of the Lord, there is great reward. In following the law, we have a great reward in that this reward is eternal, imperishable, and it gives us meaning. David understands this and he relishes it. This has all been pretty amazing so far. We're feeling pretty good. David was likely beaming again as he penned this. But then there's this pivot and you feel it. And if you spend as much time as I have in this text in the last three months, you'd feel it quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> but there's something that appears to be, and I'm not making light of such things, but there seems to be a, a holy panic attack that comes over David. As he, as he affected the word of the Lord, gets a hold of his heart. He says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep me back. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. As David is rejoicing in the revelation of God, he is cut to the quick. There's a conviction. He realizes as a result of the word of God that God can see all things and that his heart, compared with the Holy One, is not right. He asks rhetorically, who can discern his errors? He knows the answer is no one. That is no one outside of God's word which bears on our conscience. Knowing that only God can help him see, he also acknowledges that the only one who can help him is Yahweh. He then focuses on the types of sin in his heart. The first is hidden faults. It's easy to take that very literally and assume it's something so small we can't see. But the Hebrew gets at this idea of it being so characteristic, so common, we don't even recognize it as sin. For David, it might have been the way that he treated those who served in his palace or his court advisors. Perhaps it was lacking grace for them or forgetting that everyone has bad days too. The everyday things that creep into our lives that are unbecoming of someone who strives to fear the Lord. He knew by God's word they were there. And he knew he needed Yahweh to help him to see them and also to declare him innocent from them. David then moves into this other category of sin in the psalm, presumptuous sin, which is a really fancy word for a very unfancy thing. It is the exact opposite of hidden faults. We're not talking about things that are subtle or out of our periphery. We're talking about intentional, willful, rebellious, bold, unabashed, in-your-face sin. In the life of David, it's pretty easy to call out his affair with Bathsheba and setting Uriah on the front lines of the death sentence to cover his sin. I think it's easy to see the category of vices in this. Ungodly attempts at pleasure. And the ungodly attempts to either blame shift or cover our tracks. 
To that he exclaims, keep me back from them. Don't let them rule over me. We see this verse end with David's apparent confidence in Yahweh despite this. If you show me my sins, you declare me innocent, hold me back from my sin and prevent sin from ruling over me, then and only then I shall be blameless and innocent. He believes it. We see that confidence also in verses 11 and 13 where he refers to himself as Yahweh's servant. Which tells us that in spite of these offenses... And his panic, he believes that he still belongs to Yahweh and their relationship as master and servant is still fully intact. This proves that David believes Yahweh is greater than his sin. He believes that God will see his desire to fear him as worth something. He then pivots to this prayer we know well with requests to declare him blameless and keep him from sin His posture seems to change from the fear, the scary kind of fear, to a humble calm. And he makes this request. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. There are a few things to unpack here. And we're not going to, I mean, it's not exhaustive, but there are, there are some, some good nuggets here. The first is, after asking to be declared righteous... And asking God to keep him from sin, he asked Yahweh to help him live righteously. To live unto him. It's one thing to ask your mistakes to be forgiven and to be kept from making them. And it's another to ask to live in a way that shows that David fears the Lord in a non-scary way. He seems to remember who God is and he wants more than forgiveness. He wants to live in a manner that is pleasing to Yahweh. The second is that David is asking for the words of his mouth what comes out of him and the meditations of his heart what's inside of him to be acceptable. This seems to contrast to the presumptuous sin which are external and seen and the hidden faults which are largely internal or unseen. It's often our words that are said glibly without much thought that can be offensive and our darkest, most vile thoughts are generally within our hearts and minds that no one can see. David is keenly aware. And he's asking God to help him so that both are not only not sinful, but also acceptable. In the sight of God who sees all things, including the heart. The word acceptable is related directly to sacrifices or temple work. He's making the analogy that by holy living... By God's power, it is akin to the thing in David's day that provided the covering for sin. David knew it was God's forgiveness, his help in restraining sin, and living holy lives by the power of God that was pleasing to Yahweh. He understood that he needed to cooperate and proactively live righteously and believe. And because of that, he had a confidence that God would accept him. I believe David understood to an extent what was said of his patriarch Abraham. That he believed the Lord and he he counted it to him as righteousness. David finishes this prayer by addressing Yahweh specifically invoking two powerful images. That is Yahweh as both rock, a refuge, 
and redeemer, our champion, our defender. There's a quote, a quote I appreciate by George Campbell Morgan, who was a pastor and a mentor to Martin Lloyd-Jones. He actually handed the pulpit over to Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, if, if our rock were not our redeemer, we should be without hope. If our redeemer were not our rock, we might still be afraid. It is good that we never forget the mutual interpretation of these two revelations of God. We need both. David's use of redeemer is significant. Significant especially to David. As God sovereignly, in the book of Ruth, we we learn about this, he sovereignly brought Boaz to redeem Elimelech's line to bring about David. David clearly sees that Yahweh as Israel's kinsman redeemer, both now and in the past, but he also looks ahead, prophetically to the promised seed, his future heir, who would sit on his throne, who would redeem David's line, he would redeem Israel, and he would redeem all of mankind. This is amazing. It's amazing. So now that we've gotten through the psalm, what wisdom does it have for us today? First off, when we look at creation, if you suppress the truth about God being creator, you end up with a chaotic universe that is merely a Powerball number probability with absolutely no purpose, it's all chaos, and it's all trying to kill you. Disease, plagues, natural disasters, mosquitoes and ticks in Minnesota, wild animals, pandemics, too soon, I don't know. You end up with a nihilistic idea that Isaiah brings up in this idea that let us eat and let us drink for tomorrow we die. This is it. This is it. There's no purpose. There's no meaning. Do what you want and die. But if by God's grace you accept the truth, you can know the Creator personally. In Christ we marvel at His handiwork. We can't help but be moved to worship. When we look at the mountains or the ocean we're on vacation, or simply enjoying a walk around and trail around our house, we see God's hand. Not only did he make it, it works in precision. It is more beautiful than any work of art that has ever been made. Beyond that, he made it not just so we would see his glory, but that we might enjoy it, that we might worship him. Moving into God's Word, God's Word is our sole infallible guide to the nature and character of God and His kingdom, and how to commune with God, and how to flourish as a human, and the explanation for our existence. Paul in 2 Timothy 3 sums it up this way, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Because all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. This is a gift. 
Paul is affirming that God's word, Torah, and for us today, the Bible, does all of what David says it does in verses 7 through 11. And continuing with the word of God, the writer of Hebrews says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is why David's concerned. The word of God cuts to our innermost thoughts and to our heart. And just like the voice of the heavens goes out through all of creation, and nothing is hidden from the heat of the sun, no creature is hidden from the sight of God. Outside of the moving of the Spirit in our hearts, outside of Christ, this word stands in judgment of us. It condemns us as offending the infinitely valuable God, and therefore our offense is infinitely offensive. Putting it lightly, this is very bad news. The wrath of God abides upon us. The wages of sin is death. This is also... Similar, these messages that are coming out, similar to how Paul uses Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is quoted once in the Bible, and it's in Romans 10. Romans 10, 18, and he says, But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. He's not stating that the message of creation is the same as the gospel, but he's using Psalm 19 to make a point. The main point in Romans 10 is Israel's rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he, speaking to the Jews in Rome, asked rhetorically, have they not heard? Knowing that some in his audience believed that the reason that Israel rejects Christ is they simply just have not heard. It's just ignorance. But he uses the psalm to reject that. So he uses verse 4 to refer to the entirety, which they would have been familiar. Because it's in the Torah, they love the Torah, They would be familiar with the heavens declaring God's glory. They would be familiar with the revelation of himself in Torah and ending with the prayer of David to his Redeemer. Which on this side of the cross, and and for the audience in Romans, is clearly Jesus. He states in Romans 10.4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's the argument he's making. So if you know the law, you know Christ. So he's saying, you know the psalm, you know Torah, the Torah has always looked forward to a future Messiah. So if you truly understand like you say you do, if you truly understood, there would be no doubt that Christ is David, Israel's, and all of mankind's Redeemer and Savior. And to come to any other conclusion was to reject Messiah, and as a result, have that same Torah that you took so much pride in condemn you. But thank God we believe that word. For those of us in Christ, by the power and work of the Holy Spirit, we have heard and believed the message. And our faith has come from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. This word that once condemned us is now the word of life. 
Praise God. We can't help but be moved to worship and to see his glory in the saving word and his Messiah. Returning to verse 11, we've already seen how the word warns us in that, in that verse by, in 2 Timothy. But it goes on to say, when we keep the commandments of the Lord, there is great reward. And we know that we cannot keep them in our own power, but by God's grace. And by His grace, it's as if we had always kept it, and we reap bountiful benefits. It's easy to think of the reward as simply being heaven. Generically, we think of heaven as being the reward. And that's certainly true, but there are tangible benefits here and now that we can partake in and relish in. And as mentioned, as as said earlier, the enjoyment of creation, the seeing in the hand of our Creator, the beauty that fills our affections, the good it does our soul to be out in nature. It's a reward. There's a reward for meditating on the Word. Looking back to Psalm 1 again, the blessed man, the one who meditates on it day and night, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Again, I'm not suggesting that this is some sort of weird recipe to worldly success and wealth, but it is a way that provides hope that even death cannot steal. There is a reward in knowing that the Word of God and the Holy Spirit will help us discern our errors, the common and hidden sins in our hearts. Perhaps it's not having grace or your kids, or your spouse, or your co-workers. Maybe it's the words you say that are not wholesome when you're with old friends. You let your guard down. You speak in a way you wouldn't normally speak. We often lose sight of these types of things because they become so common and so normalized that they don't stick out anymore. And we need the Lord to help show us these things. So are there things in your life that are so common to you that you don't realize they aren't pleasing to the Lord? Are you asking the Lord for his help to expose them and for his forgiveness? There is reward in asking the Lord to keep us from besetting sins and vices that threaten to control us or keep us in bondage or a rebellion that is stirring deep in our hearts. God is greater than our hearts. Thank God. He's faithful to guard us and to keep us. With both of these sins and every sin in between, we need the Lord to help us and hold us back. And when we do fail, and we will, we need for him to declare us innocent. But how can we be innocent, free from bondage, blameless, as David says? Jesus Christ. That's it. We are sinners and saints. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Grab a hold of God's forgiveness. Grab a hold of it in Christ. Walk in his righteousness. How can the words of our mouth which are so often crass and foul. And the meditations of our heart, which are dark 
How can these things be acceptable to our holy God? Jesus Christ. He's, that's it. When we put the prayer of David on our lips, and we ought to, I encourage you to have that or some form of it in your lips to ask the Lord to help us to live and to speak and to meditate on things that are acceptable to him. When we do that, we see that we are bringing an offering to God. It's a form of worship. Holy living is a form of worship. Paul agrees with this when he says in Romans 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We see two elements at play. The same elements in David's prayer. Our participation in how we live our lives and God's imputed righteousness. We can only be made acceptable because of Jesus Christ. Left to our own devices, we have absolutely no hope. Nothing we could ever do in a million lifetimes in our own power could ever make us acceptable. But in Christ... We are pleasing and acceptable to God. That is a miracle. That is a reward. So as we pray this prayer, we can likewise share in David's confidence. And we move beyond into assurance. We're not just confident, we're assured. We know for certain that as we fail, even as we fail, God is faithful to forgive us because of what Christ has done. We are seated in heavenly places. Positionally, we are right with God. And nothing can shake that. We can't even screw that up. Praise God. We can have full assurance that God is our rock and our redeemer. That no one can snatch us from his hand. That there is forgiveness for our sin and failings. And there is great reward in following God's word. As we rely on Christ to be acceptable... And we also ask him to help us move toward him in holiness. We can be sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, what a rich psalm. What a rich psalm. We see your glory in creation. We see your glory in your word. Once it condemned us. Once the universe was trying to kill us. Once your word condemned us and we had no hope. But in you, we see beauty. We see your glory. We see salvation. So Lord, we throw ourselves at your mercy. And we are, thank you for what you have done to redeem us. Thank you for the great salvation you've provided, that you are our rock and our redeemer. Help us to remember that. Help us to look at when the sun rises and sets that you are faithful. And when we want to live lives of worship, we want to worship you in the way we live. So Lord, we ask you, that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable to you. Knowing that there's forgiveness, but knowing that as we grow in the knowledge of you, we move toward you in the way we live.
We move closer to your face. So I pray that everyone this morning, Lord, that they would be encouraged that in you there is such hope, there's such riches, such value in your word and in your Messiah. Lift our gaze, cause us to walk in that light. We thank you for your many blessings and for your great salvation that you have provided in the finished work of Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name. Amen.